Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, I am honored to welcome the founder and the director of the American Voters Alliance, Jacqueline Timmer. How are you today, Jacqueline? I'm doing well. How are you, Clay? Thank you very much. I'm doing great. Listeners, if you hear a little bit of background noise, that is a Great Dane puppy named Iroh, and he's a good boy. So we'll forgive him. He for is. You. We're in the middle of a move, so I've got to keep close hold on him. So I apologize. That's but not it's a great, problem. Great to be here today, and he's happy to be here as well. So I love dogs, and Iroh is going to be big enough that you're going to love him or else. <laughs> Yep, that's right. That's right. Well, Jacqueline, how did you decide what motivated you to found an organization like the American Voters Alliance? What led you to this part of your life? If I'm being perfectly honest, it was an accident. Uh, I think a lot of good things come out of our lives by accident and simply just saying yes to what's right in front of you. So I was raised in the political arena. I grew up in that, was exposed to that. Um, actually, I, I remember the first time I watched a parade, I was a teenager and it didn't make sense why you'd watch a parade. I'd only walked in them all growing up. So uh, I grew up in the political and honestly became very disheartened and disgruntled by what I saw, uh, not even so much from the opposition, but actually the infighting on our own side. I became very disillusioned about the ability to effectuate change in the world. And so I went on a little adventure with God and, and 2020 hit all of us. And suddenly it was this, oh my goodness, if we see what's happening and we don't get involved, then, then we're the ones responsible. And so I started, I started praying and just asking God more or less what my role was uh, at, at this time and in this place. And right after I made that prayer, I got a phone call and it was not expected or anticipated or sought out, but I got a phone call and I was asked to take on a side project. I was currently working in marketing and I was asked to take on a side project, helping with um, bringing awareness to government overreach by the, the state governors that were uh, doing the lockdowns during COVID and also using emergency police orders to effectuate changes in election law unilaterally without legislature involvement. And so I, I took a trip. My husband's in the military. He was gone for training. So I took that as an opportune time to spend some time in Michigan and take a look at what was going on with Governor Whitmer. And one thing led to another. Uh, what was a side project turned into a full-time opportunity in a matter of a couple weeks. And soon that turned into both a corporation uh, as well as a nonprofit. And again, it was, it was pretty accidental. It was the demand of the project required formalization. And so lo and behold, we have what is now the American Voters Alliance, which honestly started as seeding grassroots groups in order to assist in the standing that's needed, the standing threshold that's needed for litigation to move forward effectively. And then as that need developed and we gained more understanding of what needed to happen on the ground, it turned into a groundswell of opportunity. And so we are working actively in about 21 states right now uh, with different groups and mentoring, developing resources and materials coming out of current litigation efforts and taking what happened in 2020 as the kind of the, the training ground, if you will, for how to reform the election system effectively and moving forward. Wow. Now that answer 
is so comprehensive and excellent. It just springboards to a thousand questions that I want to ask. So <laughs> let me try to prioritize some of these because time is always limited. But you mentioned standing for litigation, and I hadn't That's even right. thought to ask you about that today. But the narrative from the main media is 2020 must have been copacetic because courts said time after time, we're not going to change anything. And therefore, audience to the main media, you should conclude that the court said we looked at this and it was all good. But in fact, the truth is the court said we are not going to look at this. And in large part, they said that because the party coming to our court lacks standing. So Jacqueline, would you please explain how you all are involved in changing that outcome? That's right. So happy to dive into that. There are a couple key points that I'm going to want to knock through as we go through this explanation here. So first, the American Voters Alliance is a 501c4, and we are directly partnered with the Amistad Project. The Amistad Project brought forth litigation in 2020, still has ongoing litigation. I believe they're the only group that still has ongoing litigation from 2020, and actually just had a major victory in Pennsylvania. So first off, it is not true that all the litigation or lawsuits that were brought forward on, uh, regarding the 2020 election were dismissed. That's absolutely not true. Many of them are still ongoing. There are still ongoing investigations. And you can find that information from the Amistad project that we work with. Uh, when it comes to standing, so there are a number of thresholds when you are bringing forth a lawsuit that are more or less technical issues. So the standing threshold has to do with harm. Is this a particular individual that suffered harm with you know, what the claim is that occurred in order for a lawsuit to be brought forth. So withstanding, it can be used as a technicality, uh, and it can also be very ambiguous in the context of elections because it's, well, you know, is the general population harmed? We know about the lawsuit from Texas and went forward to the Supreme Court and said, hey, if this happened in the swing states, it affects us because it's a national election. And so there was question about whether the standing was actually merited in that particular case. So what, what we did is we worked on the grassroots level to develop groups that would pass that standing threshold. Now, whether the other cases should or should not have been dismissed based on standing, I'm not going to speculate about that. I haven't looked at the full merits of those cases, but that's just kind of the general context of the value of standing. Okay. Now, it would occur to me, but I'm a simpleton, uh, not a simpleton in the terms of being ignorant, but I think very simply. I looked at six counties in the United States and found just as a layperson without much resource that those six counties in six states absolutely were overwhelmed by fraud the outcomes they reported were provably false, and they changed the outcome of those states in the 2020 presidential election. Now, one of them was Pennsylvania, uh, and particularly right. Philadelphia County there. Spent a lot of time there in 2020. Yeah. And this one was so easy, Jacqueline. The PA.gov website had published the exact number of absentee ballots that they had sent out to potential voters and they had published the exact number that they received back on time to be counted. And then after everybody called timeout in those six counties, which obviously is what right. led me to look at them the next day or days later, they reported an amount counted 
that was 1.126 million higher than the number they said they had sent out. Now, I don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say that's cheating, and it's very obvious that the result is bogus. So my question to you, Jacqueline, is why is it such a hard sell for so many citizens to say there was fraud in the election that changed the outcome? Right. Well, I'll, I'll get to fraud specifically in a moment, but I think one of the dangers that happened in 2020 was the complete shift in the narrative. So when we talk about fraud in an election, that's, that's a pretty strong claim. And we'll get there because there's evidence around that. But really, immediately after the election, what we need to be looking at was is was the uh, was the election conducted lawfully? Was it conducted according to the manner of law that is pre-prescribed in order to ensure that we can have faith in the results? And so immediately what the left media did is they said, oh, well, is there proof of fraud? And is there proof that it was systemic and would change the election? No, we're throwing this out. Oh my goodness, that's the big lie. When there was all of this evidence and all of this understanding that was immediately in our faces that, wow, this election was not conducted according to the way that the law prescribes. And so we don't have faith in the results. And that is actually the threshold for the certification to begin with. And so what you had is you had all of this certification getting pushed through based on a media narrative rather than based on the legal understanding of that threshold or burden of proof in order to certify the election process. So it, it polarized people immediately and created this frustration. And honestly, most Americans, we want to believe in our system. We want to believe in our system of government. We have the greatest nation in the world and liberties that haven't been afforded to anybody else in the context of human history. And so to believe that that's been corrupted is frightening. It's, it's overwhelming because we have such a large system. And so I think that people want to believe the narrative that everything is okay and there are just a few kooks out there that are stirring the pot. It's a lot easier to believe that than to look at the fact that there has been a systemic and coordinated effort to skew the election results. And we're now finding the evidence that demonstrates that at a scalable level where there was a coordinated effort to, and, and there are instances of fraud, but I'm talking about a coordinated effort to actually alter the process of the election system itself, to not just weigh the scale or put a finger on the scale on one side, but actually alter how the scale weighs in favor of a particular candidate. And so that's a very daunting thing to believe. And then also I have to say, there are a number of conservatives that like to overstate the evidence. And so in this rush to be relevant and in this fear of beating the clock, there are a lot of conservatives that rushed to the forefront and made some really outrageous claims that simply were not true. And so it discredited our side pretty significantly. And I think it damaged our ability to, to enter a real conversation around these issues. That is a very interesting observation. And I appreciate that insight. For myself, again, thinking simply, I looked at a few things that caused me to say, this is out of control. Uh, one, before the election ever happened, uh, Speaker Pelosi was trying to do what you said, change the process nationwide. Yep. And, and they're I, working on that now, before 2022. They're making yeah. it so easy for any interested consumer of information to see that what you're saying, Jacqueline, is true. They are trying to change the game, if you like, the, the structure. 
And, and I would say with that, if I can interject there, because yes. I've thought about that, they are trying to change the game, but they're trying to change the game so that it's not really a game. It's not a game that you play. It's only a game where the, the one winner continually wins. They're yes, forcing it towards a one-party system. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and it's so evident in the, the things that they're doing right now. And the fact that they were willing to try to press that button of we're going to even change the rules of the Senate forever yep. for this one thing. Yep. We must have this one thing. God bless uh, Arizona Senator Cinema for saying, I may be with you on these other things, but I can't press that big red button to blow this body up. <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of Kristen Cinema. She she beat my uh, college classmate, Martha McSally, oh, wow. to uh, I was from the Air Force Academy and so was Senator McSally. But anyway, they're making it very obvious to any of yep. us who would, who would say, what are you up to? Well, what they're up to is what you're saying, changing it to where we win and you don't get to play, <laughs> basically. Right. But when they right. did these things, which is why I thought some of these uh, legal questions should have been answered by the courts, the legal questions were, can they change these rules during right. the contest? And right. the very obvious legal answer is no. The very obvious legal truth is they did, therefore shouldn't we question that? So it seemed to me that was an easier question. But the other one that was so obvious that made it where I didn't have to be digging into, you know, I wonder what spooky things were happening, was this coordinated six-county and six-state timeout at approximately 1030 Central Time on election night. And when they said, between now and 6 a.m. local the next day, we will not do any counting. All of you observers are excused. We all go to sleep and wake up. And in every one of those six counties, the results have completely changed. Well, if they said time out, we're not doing any counting, then that outcome the next morning when they start back cannot be accepted as legitimate. That just, I, it doesn't matter how it happened. I know how it happened in most of those places, but you don't have to dig into that to understand that can't be legitimate. So why is that then you suppose? I understand that all of us citizens want desperately for this most important activity of voting to be sacrosanct. How do we convince people that we don't have to convince them of the importance of that, but how do we convince them that there is a fly in the ointment that we need to remove? Right. Well, I think one of the um, most significant things that hasn't been discussed broadly and is just starting to, to hit the media ever so slightly is the nonprofit network that coordinated so much involvement in the 2020 election. So the Amistad Project is now tracking over, uh, and I won't give the exact number at this point, it's ongoing investigation, but we're talking in the billions of dollars that have moved through dark monies um, in through nonprofit organizations to actually alter the way that the elections process is ran, effectively creating a shadow government. So let, I know that's a lot of big um, idea stuff. So let me kind of break down into some specific examples, but we're really looking at the swing states. They are involved in other states, but Pennsylvania, those six districts that you're referring to, Wisconsin was huge, Michigan, uh, Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, Nevada. So those are the big play areas that they were involved. So what we saw in 2020, um, and I'm going to use Mark Zuckerberg as the example. He's the popular example right now, but this is much bigger than Mark Zuckerberg. And Mark Zuckerberg is not the coordinator behind this effort. He is one of the funders of the effort. 
So Mark Zuckerberg himself gave over $400 million into the elections process in 2020. That exceeds the federal government, matches or exceeds the federal government and what they provide through HAVA or the Help America Vote Act to the states. And what Mark Zuckerberg did, and I'm gonna say that he did it because you don't give $400 million without having an understanding of where that's going. What he did through coordination with the Center for Tech and Civic Life and other nonprofit organizations that are involved in a network is they provided grants to specific cities or municipalities for the 2020 election. And I'll explain in a moment why that's a concern. But what they did is they brought these grants, they made a relationship with the local municipalities and they said, hey, we're going to help you uh, run the elections in a manner that's safe for the 2020 election during COVID. And in order to do so, we're gonna provide you these monies. And oh, by the way, here's how you're going to apply those monies not for safety gear, not for protective services, not in order to ensure that people have safe voting options and hand sanitizer. No, we're actually gonna run a get out the vote effort in targeted municipalities based on the voter data that you have in your office so that we know who we want to turn out and here's how we're gonna do it. Oh, and by the way, if you don't do exactly what we say, how we say, and if we're not happy with the results at the end of the election, next year, we're gonna take all that money back and you're gonna owe us maybe Philly, um, about $10 million, or you know Green Bay, you're gonna owe us around a million dollars. Those are, I'm just using general numbers, but we're talking in the millions. So they would go to the municipalities, they would make the agreement, then on the back end, they would specify what that agreement entailed in order to alter the election process, oftentimes completely contrary to election law. And then they would have the clawback clause, making those municipalities beholden to the nonprofits rather than the government. Now, a lot of people say, oh, great, like you gave private money in order to help with elections, how benevolent of you. Yes, you should get your tax deduction. But what took place here is it actually circumvented HAVA or the Help America Vote Act. And one of the main thrusts behind HAVA is making sure that there isn't what's called disparate impact in the voting process or also the Right to Vote Act. So what we saw in the civil rights movement is the Democrat party um, at that time in the Deep South was not favorable to the black community and would remove polling places from the black community and they would stack them in the white areas so that they could keep control of power. They would make it difficult for blacks to vote, easy for whites to vote, keep their power. Well, we saw that same playbook take place in 2020. And what they did is they made it very, very easy for specific demographics to vote. And I wanna target something on Philly in a moment, so I'll come back to that in just a moment. But they'd make it very easy for a specific demographic to vote, going to their door, registering them, having them vote in person, et cetera, and, and stacking and altering the odds in one particular group's favor using government officials to do it. According to HAVA, the way that works in order to avoid disparate impact is that the states put forth a plan that they submit to the federal or national government, and then the national government approves it, says, yes, this is fair. This treats your citizens equally. We approve of this. Here's your, here's your grant money in order to carry that out. So HAVA in, works to ensure that equal treatment of voters and votes not based on a political preference or skin color, but based on demographic and, of citizens. Now, by contracting directly with the mayors of these municipalities, what the CTCL and other organizations did is they completely undercut that process of equal and fair treatment in elections. And then they also embedded their own people in the elections administrative process itself. And that's how you have a man from New York City running the central count location where all of the absentee ballots go through in Green Bay, Wisconsin on election night. 
where he has the keys, he has the access codes, and the city clerk is kicked out on medical leave. And we have the emails demonstrating that she was bullied out of that position and felt uncomfortable with what was taking place in that process. So there's something much bigger going on here than, you know, ballots being printed from China on bamboo or, you know, all these all these claims about external hacks, even though we have a lot of concerns taking place externally right now, we were hacked from within. This was a progressive internal hack. And moreover, to kind of take that one step further, in Philadelphia, what we found is that they have direct front end access to the poll books. So people are concerned about the inflation of poll books. We're concerned with HR1 and the um, specification that people are not allowed to clean the poll books according to HR1. Well, now we're finding that over 80 leftist non Profits had direct front end access to the poll books to input new voters. So you have the poll book front end access, you have the administration process that's actually being taken over by a nonprofit organization. And then you have these groups on the back end saying that anyone who discredits or questions is bringing forth misinformation that's a danger to our democratic system. You, you have, and they're all funded by the same people. So in order to have this conversation with it, with you know people on the left or or more moderate, it's always great to start with Mark Zuckerberg because nobody likes him right now. <laughs> you know <laughs> the whole misinformation thing, and then he's he's he kind of I don't know. I guess he thinks he can if you can control elections and you can control the flow of information, you're pretty much in charge. And I think he's got that in his head right now. And so you know start with Mark Zuckerberg and just say, hey, how do you feel about? Mark Zuckerberg pouring more money into the election process than the federal government, but not to support the system, but actually to alter the system in a way that makes it beholden to his regulations. And, and kind of breaking that down for people, people pretty quickly see why that's a concern, because we don't want to be treated differently based on our ideological preferences, and we don't want our votes compromised, whether we're left, right, or in between. It's really only the neo-Marxist progressive left that wants to change the system. Yes. Well, that's uh, a rich answer. And you mentioned uh, something I want to highlight for the listeners a little more, which is this access to the voter rolls. You mentioned something like 80 leftist or so-called progressive, whatever name they want to give themselves today, the, the enemies of the Constitution that would like to right. fundamentally alter this country into something completely different. Their groups, 80 of them or so, had unfettered access. The number, listeners, of Greater access any, than many government officials. Yes, and the number of organizations that you would consider conservative or constitutionally based that had similar access was precisely zero. It's not a debatable matter. This was a one-sided alteration to the process. This is a good natural breakpoint in the discussion. We're going to continue this interview with the founder and director of the American Voters Alliance, Jacqueline Timmer, on our next episode. I'll be asking her for some encouragement and good news about how we who love America and who love the Constitution are going to succeed in defending our elections and restoring integrity to vote counting. You'll want to hear what she has to say on the next episode. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July. L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information and please share with your friends. 
We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.